Good evening. So 41% of Conservative members of Parliament voted against the Prime Minister in that motion of confidence vote last night. And when you think that a third of all Tory MPs are on the payroll, and given that not that many turkeys vote for Christmas, you realise just how much opposition to the Prime Minister there is in the House of Commons, let alone in the rest of the country. And I stick to my contention that the Conservative supporting newspapers have got this wrong. If you look at The Sun, look at The Mail, they will tell you that if Johnson goes, it'll be a disaster for the Conservative Party. I read this completely the opposite way round. I believe that if the Conservative Party sticks with Johnson, they're a sinking ship and they will head to a 1997-style electoral wipeout. But something else happened yesterday that really didn't get noticed with all the drama around the Conservative Party. And it was Keir Starmer giving an interview yesterday morning. Let's listen to what Keir Starmer had to say. All this Prime Minister ever um, said was he would get Brexit done, and so he's got us out on the deal which you've described. What I want to do, and what we would do if we were in government, is make Brexit work, which is make sure that we've got a better deal that works, whether it's that for businesses, because so many businesses are struggling with the extra bureaucracy. They just want to trade well with their European partners and, of course, across, across the world. Well, if you want to interpret what he's just said... He said we should rejoin the EU's single market. He's made it pretty clear that if he becomes Prime Minister, that's what he wants to do. And be in no doubt that the Liberal Democrats want to do the same thing. The SNP want to do the same thing. They want to take us to what would be effectively Brexit in name only. But it's not just them. There are voices within the Conservative Party. One of those who regrets this bitterly is Daniel Hannan. Now, of course, Lord Hannan. And he wrote, he wrote this Sunday, staying in the single market or large parts of it would have saved us a lot of trouble. He was the one Brexiteer that appeared on television and radio in 2016 arguing we should stay. But far more worrying is MP, Conservative MP, Remainer, Tobias Elwood, has said, in a nutshell, all these challenges would disappear if we dare to advance our Brexit model by rejoining the EU single market, the Norway model, leaving this aspect of the EU was not on the ballot paper nor called for by either the Prime Minister or Nigel Farage during the 2016 referendum. Well, that is an outright lie. It was made absolutely clear by every leading figure on both Leave and Remain that a Leave vote meant leaving the single market. But you can see how Remainers want to twist things. And my fear is if we finish up with Boris Johnson staying as leader, if we finish up with a coalition, uh, it could even be a minority government led by Keir Starmer after the next election, he'll get support from some on the Conservative benches and we'll get dragged back into the EU single market. And yes, we would become like Norway. Now, Norway at least have their fish, which we don't even have. But we'd finish up having rules made for British industry over which we had no say whatsoever. And that, in the years to come, would lead some to say, why don't we just rejoin? I never thought I'd sit here and say that Brexit could be in peril. I now believe that it could be. What do you think? Is Brexit in peril? Please let me know your views. Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, Brian Monteith, as a lifelong journalist, 
on the Scotsman, many other newspapers. He was an MSP for the Conservative Party. He was a Brexit Party MEP, colleague of mine. And nobody has studied what's happening with Brexit in the last few years as closely as him. Brian, welcome to the programme. Welcome. <laughs> Brian, am I, am I getting overexcited when I see a potential of a Labour leader who wants to take us back into the single market, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, as I understand it, and, of course, now some Tory Remainers? Um, is there a genuine threat that at the next election that Boris Johnson, the man who was elected to get Brexit done, could actually become a slight threat to it? No, you're not getting overexcited. Uh, in fact, this has been the plan for quite some time now. Uh, Tony Blair, uh, guess who, why not, uh, has been signalling that Labour should not campaign to go back in to the EU uh, and should avoid a referendum at all costs. And of course, how, how then would they get us back in? Well, they would actually align, first of all, align the UK to the EU and then join the single market. And they would join the single market without a referendum uh, so that they would not have the difficulty of facing defeat. Um, and so it's all about building a parliamentary majority uh, for a single market. Uh, and, and so when, when uh, uh, Keir Starmer's been saying, we won't be going back into uh, the EU, we must make it work, Hey, now, now he's actually showing his hand. He's going to get a better deal. Now, you can only have a better deal if you negotiate. You can't just impose that better deal. He will have to negotiate it. And so what will it be? The only opportunity that could be would be to join the single market and possibly also, in the end, the customs union. So, so it would be, Brian, or you're not getting overexcited. This is a way of avoiding the electorate and usurping the biggest democratic vote uh, that this country ever had. And presumably, um, our good friends in Brussels would be delighted with this arrangement. Oh, I think very much so. Uh, you can already look at the trade figures, and uh, uh, the trade figures are not good for uh, EU exporters to the UK. Um, obviously, that's been disrupted by COVID, but there are signs that there's a lot of a, a change in pattern of where British companies are sourcing uh, uh, their parts from, uh, that uh, there's different ways of, of goods now coming in to uh, to the UK, such as from uh, Morocco to Poole and avoiding uh, going through uh, the EU. There's all sorts of changes in patterns and, and there's certainly a hit on the EU, as we always said there could be, uh, to their exports to us. They want to capture our market again, and they would very much welcome us to be in the single market because they'd also extract funds from us, taxpayers' money from us, and they could impose, as you've said, their laws by them deciding on the laws, not us. Brian Monteith, thank you for joining me here on GB News this evening, and I hope that is a, an alarm bell. Uh, to all of you at home and to a wider community. Uh, and that's why I believe Boris Johnson is taking not just the Conservative Party, but potentially the country and Brexit itself in the wrong direction. I know there are many presenters on GB News who take a different view, but I believe that even more strongly after that vote last night. Now, this morning there was a Cabinet meeting, and extraordinarily, because we're used to pictures of the Cabinet gathering, but no, no, we've got a full text of Boris Johnson's speech to the Cabinet. We, he even had the whole thing videoed. 
Let's see, let's listen to a short clip of Boris Johnson addressing the Cabinet this morning. Good morning, Cabinet. Thank you all very much. And very good to, to, to see you all. And I, I think, uh, thank you, by the way, everybody, for all your good work yesterday, because, uh, which was a very important day, because uh, we we're able now to draw a line under the issues that our opponents want to talk about, and we are able to get on with talking about what I think the people in this country want us to talk about, which is what we are doing uh, to help them and to take the country forward. And that is what we're going to do. We're going to focus exclusively on that. Well, extraordinary. Joining me is Tim Montgomery, former advisor to Boris Johnson in number 10 and conservative commentator. That wasn't a speech to cabinet, was it? That was a big PR stunt to the country. And I, I love, you know, we're now able to draw a line under the issues. And, and Tim, you heard me talking about my worry yep. about the rejoiners who would use the single market and say, well, it's not constitutional, there's no need for a referendum, and to try and use that as a way to get us back in. But before we get to that, is the Conservative Party now in peril? I wouldn't say the Conservative Party is in peril. And just listening to your introduction a few moments ago, one of the things that I think is different, for example, why I don't fear a 1997-style rout is Kistarmer is not Tony Blair. You know, the same weaknesses are there on the Tory side. There's a sleaziness to the Tory party to some extent. We've seen so many MPs resign or get into ethical difficulties. Or go to prison. Or go to prison. I mean, I mean, in the 90s, it was just affairs. It was, yeah. And that's this a, is far more serious. It is, much more serious. I agree with that. But at the same time, you know, elections aren't referenda. They're choices. And I think the choice between the Conservative Party and a Keir Starmer-led Labour Party is a different choice mm. than... T Tony Blair, mm. you know, you and I had big disagreements with Tony Blair. Oh, but he was he good. Was a, he was a formidable politician. He was class. Keir Starmer is not in the same no, league. Blair, I disagree with so much of what he did, but he was a class act yeah. when he was out there in the country campaigning. But this is different, because here you've actually got a twin attack on Tory votes. Mm. It's the Liberal Democrats in yeah. the South, the South West, parts of the Northwest too. And those Conservative voters, much more middle-class mm. Conservative voters, are very worried about lies, behaviour, and all of these things. Yeah. So Boris stays on, does he, as leader? For the time being, but I think he's handled today quite badly, actually. You know, when you have over 40% of your own MPs voting against you, mm. if that was me, I'd think, these are my own side, and they don't back me. I would be having real soul-searching and yet today he presented it almost as business as usual. Nothing had happened. No real reaching out to his oppo you know, opponents within the party. What can I learn from them? And um, I think that's regrettable. And I don't think I share your worry about rejoining the single market no. or anything. I so, think we need to so, be... We so, need to... so hang on. Yep. The Tory party lose the next election, which yep. looks very likely, and in my view even more likely yep. with Johnson there. I could be right, I could be wrong. Yeah. But we can see now Keir Starmer charting and, and, and using yeah. the cover of the crisis in the Tory party as the day that he announced. I mean, quite clever yeah. in terms of, of, of organisation. I mean, no charisma, I agree, but quite clever in terms of the way it's done. We know the Lib Dems want that. We know the SNP want that. And now people like Tobias Elwood in the Conservative Party are calling for that. There is a threat, surely. There's a, there's a threat, but I'm not worried about it too much. Because, you, for example, look at what the Liberal Democrats are doing in Tiverton and Holliton at the moment. They're desperate for the kind of uh, Conservatives that used to back them to come on side. And you're right, on the ethical issues, that a lot of core Conservative voters are very embarrassed about uh, Boris Johnson's behaviour. But actually, they still back Brexit. 
And the one thing that I think could really spoil the Liberal Democrats reconnecting with those kind of voters, as they did in North Shropshire last year as well, is if they start to reopen the Brexit issue. But they won't. Brian Monteith, you think they'll be dishonest Brian Monteith who studies these things and writes about these things every day, said the way they're doing it is quietly by stealth. They'll just say we're going to make trading rules easier. Well, this is why it's important, even though I don't share your concern, it's important that you're raising it. Because the more we put this on the agenda and hold Liberal Democrats and all the other political parties to, know, account. to account and get them to be explicit about ruling this out. And, of course, politicians are capable of being explicit before election and doing completely yeah. the opposite after. But I wonder how many, Tob how many Tobias Elwoods are there? Very few. And within I think the Conservative One of the things I thought party. was really interesting was how Tom Tugendhat... Now, Tom Tugendhat is chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, possible Tory leadership candidate. Mm -hmm. He backed Remain, but he immediately, after Tobias Elwood said that, came out and said, no, no way, we're not going back. The Brexit issue is settled. We're leaving the single market. And I think he certainly knows, Tom Tugendhat knows, within the Conservative Party, anyone who reopens this debate mm. has no chance of succeeding Boris Johnson. So I think the Conservative Party is weak on lots of issues at the moment, but on keeping the Brexit settlement intact, it's in a strong and principled place. And how long will Boris Johnson be leader of the Tory party? I'm certain I didn't predict Donald Trump becoming president, Nigel. I didn't predict Jeremy Corbyn becoming... But you're here so... to be put on the spot, Tim, <laughs> you know. I don't think he will um, lead us into the next election. That's as far as I, I, I will go, because I've been incredibly struck over the wonderful Jubilee weekend. Mm, wasn't it just? Family and friends, people who've been lifelong Conservatives, they are embarrassed at the conduct of the Prime Minister. They no longer believe him when he says almost anything. You cannot have a leader of a political party going into an election talking about whether it's the single market or tax yeah. or the cost of living. And ultimately, the Conservative Party is a ruthless animal. It will find a way of getting rid of him because the problems associated with him aren't going to go, go away. Tim Montgomery, as ever, thank you very much. Indeed. Now, this is pretty extraordinary. A film, a British film that was made at a cost of £12 million. And the scenario is that ISIS take over chunks of the Middle East, Iraq in particular, um, and then appears this sort of apparition, and it is Fatima, who was the daughter of the Prophet, um, and this film has been put on, but it's been met in Bradford, Bolton, Birmingham and Sheffield with protests. They do not want the Lady of Heaven to be screened. They say that it is blasphemous. And as a result of these protests, one particular company that owns cinemas up and down the country has pulled the film and when the announcement was made outside there was a chair Alawa Akbar they were delighted and the chairman of the council of mosques in Bolton said we are a very diverse community and we are very respectful of each other's culture and honor on community cohesion well presumably um, if that man was respectful of our culture uh, he would know would he not that part of our culture and history all the way through is we do present images of religious leaders and not just plight ones, cartoons, lampoons. It's called free speech. It's what we've always had in this country. And to think that a cinema chain has closed this film because they're worried about what might happen to their staff, I think it's very, very worrying. We don't have those kind of blasphemy laws in this country, and I don't want them either. Well, I'm joined now.
by Imam and broadcaster Amjal Mazrur. Um, I'd like to get, Amjal, your thoughts um, on what has happened and on this film effectively being banned from some cinemas in the United Kingdom. Uh, sorry, Nigel, just to correct you, my name is Ajmal, so that we just get it right. I apologise. Um, that's OK. It's a very good question and a very good introduction. I don't think you've seen the film yourself. If you had seen it yourself and if you had known about the maker of the film, you'd probably be saying something very different. He's a well-known hate preacher. He's a well-known sectarian. A hate who stokes preacher? Out hate preacher. Uh, he does, does it in mean? Arabic. What does that mean? Hold on one second. I'll tell you in a minute. So he does, does it very well. In the Arab world, he's well, very well known to be an extremist hate preacher who teaches and gets the Sunnis and the Shias stoked up with a sectarian uh, tension and violence in localities. And it's very well known in the Arab world. He does it in Arabic language, and of course, he doesn't do it in English, so we don't get to see it. But those of us who understand and have access to Arabic world, we know what he does. He's the one who made the film, script right, as well as make, made the whole film. The intention behind the film isn't to actually show how ISIS is defeated. It is actually to further sectarian violence as well as division within certain parts of the community. We don't want that. It, this is, this I is the United think, Kingdom. I don't, I don't think want, the majority uh, I don't want Shia Sunni tension to be at my doorstep. Really sorry. I want to see harmony between all people. He is just stoking up a problem. That's well, we all know. We all know there are plenty of tensions between different religious and ethnic groups in this country already. And I understand your point about not wanting to stir things up. But, but here's the point. Here's the point. We are a country that believes in religious freedom. We're a country that believes you can say offensive things. I can, I can quite happily here on GB News tonight, if I wish to, say offensive things about the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. Um, our magazines can do the most horrible cartoons of the Archbishop of Canterbury or anybody. And what it seems is there are some sections, some sections of the Muslim community living in Britain who are saying, and they've said it very clearly in Bolton, that it's blasphemous for any depiction of the prophet or his daughter Fatima, even though we can't see clearly a face. They're saying it's blasphemous for those images to even be seen. And I put it to you that that insistence that a film is withdrawn for those reasons is against British values. I agree. It is against British values to be anti-Semitic. You can't deny Holocaust. You'll be in jail. It is that wasn't the question I was raising. And I very clearly, let me make my point, you've made yours. If I deny Holocaust, I'll be in prison. Because that it is, is not the discussion war. tonight. Hold on, hold, on, hold on, Nigel. Hold on. If somebody is stoking hatred, racial hatred, sectarian tension, I think that's already breaching our country's law. Let me ask that's you the, the question again. Of, let no, me ask you that's the question the reason why I'm saying no, no, you're not answering my question, are you? My question to you, you and me, my or question for this country's is culture, or our freedom of speech, it's only is it blasphemous? an to, hold on, it's is an it blasphemous to, for images of the prophet as well or his daughter to be shown in a British want. cinema? Sorry? Is it blasphemous for those images to be shown? I am not talking about blasphemy here. You are. I am talking to you about the reason 
The reason, uh, the my cinema, reason, no, no, my reason, Nigel, oh, if you want to just talk reason, through and not answer the question, yes. then I'm afraid uh, you my, look to everybody doing this simple. right now You've invited as somebody who is not prepared is, to face up to the challenge. I will repeat, stuck, finally, and for the last time, that a cinema, a cinema in Bolton and other branches around the country has closed because there were people outside protesting loudly with placards and perhaps it was felt in a threatening way to staff and people who wanted to go and see this film who were saying openly and clearly that it was blasphemous for images of the Prophet or indeed his daughter Fatima to be shown in a British cinema. Now I'm not suggesting that is the view of all Muslim people living in Britain but I'm asking you, do you think that is blasphemous? I'm saying something very simple. I'm not interested in blasphemy. I don't think blasphemy exists within Islam. That's my view, very simply. Well, what do you say then? Well, what do you say then? Nigel, you've asked me a question. Give me the chance to answer. So you've said no. You've said no, and I accept your answer of no. So what do you say to your fellow religionists who think it is blasphemy? is stoking up sectarian attention, and it sounds like you're relishing it. Don't I tell you what, I am going to ask. I mean, how can you? Did you know I'm going to ask the executive so producer of the film, but I will put the, the I will most put negative way possible. His charges you're to you. At, no, you're you don't want to have a debate. You want to avoid debate, and I'm very sorry. I've given you the opportunity. You want to talk about the Holocaust and many other things, and I think in the interest of open debate on GB News, we will choose to end the interview here and now. Thank you very much. Indeed. Now. The executive producer of this film is Malik Shibak. And I put it to you, Malik, that uh, we've just been told that you are uh, effectively working on behalf of a hate preacher, that your film is trying to incite further division between Shia and Sunni Muslims. And that, we're told, is the reason and the problem with this film and why it should be withdrawn. Hello, Nigel. Thanks for having me on. I do appreciate it. Um, your previous guest, uh, Amjam, I forget his name. I'm not sure Masrur. what he's speaking about, um, to be very honest with you. Uh, on the matter of Sheikh Al-Habib, the writer of The Lady of Heaven, he's a very well-known cleric with a large following across the globe. And uh, he's a historian. He's a, uh, he's a researcher into Islamic history. And he's put forward this narrative, uh, as being the writer of this film, he's put forward the narrative of of Lady Fatima, uh, the film, what it is, Nigel, this film is the life story of Lady Fatima, peace be upon her. She's a, a beloved figure to all Muslims across the world. Uh, you know, we spent one year in pre-production uh, going through the historical text with the guidance of His Eminence, Sheikh Al-Habib, uh, as a historian, to depict her life. That's all it is. Uh, these these claims of it being uh, blasphemy because of showing the Prophet, yeah. uh, that's just nonsense. Uh, there's two reasons why that's nonsense, actually. First reason is that this whole topic of showing the Prophet is a contested issue across the Muslim world. You, wherever you go, every corner of the Muslim world, you'll find a different um, understanding and interpretation. In many places in the Middle East, you'll find artistic uh, endeavors of portraying the Prophet. So it's not as black and white as these pro-Taliban, pro-ISIS groups have made it out to be and bullied the world to believe. It's not the truth. And from our side, from our perspective, uh, it's, very, it's, it's very normal to portray the Prophet as long as you portray him in a, in a proper manner. But Malik, and, uh, as, a, as, a, as a British Muslim, Malik, you understand that British culture is that all criticisms and all religious leaders are open to question, open to mockery. You know, you know how things work. What is it? I mean... What is it that has made... Yes, what, is, what is it that has made people in Bolton and elsewhere go and protest 
in the street against this film. But are we dealing with a form of Islamic extremism here? Is that what we're fighting? So that's my point, Nigel. It's not actually about the depiction of the Prophet. They're using that. I mean, they are offended about that, but that's not actually the main issue. The main issue is that this history, uh, you know, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't claim, and we've never claimed to try to portray a very over-romanticized, fluffed-up version of history. We're tackling history, particularly Islamic history, you know, and myself being a Muslim and myself being from a Sunni background also, we're tackling yeah. Islamic history as it is. We want to discuss history openly and look back at what happened because uh, there is a narrative in this film, although it is about the lady prim primarily, it does uh, uh, tackle this issue of the roots of these terrorist groups. That's the truth. And these groups, uh, if you actually go look around on the videos online spreading now, uh, that are going viral, you'll find these groups, uh, there's a lot of known names there that are known to be pro-Taliban, uh, uh, pro-ISIS, oh even God. some of them holding up uh, photos of uh, ISIS uh, members, well-known, famous ISIS heroes. So it's not a secret, and you can go on their platforms online, they're always uh, posting about Taliban. So they don't want this history to be spoken about. They don't want this discussion, no, and, 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 and what hey, they're doing... You know, all historical films and interpretations will have differences. Hey, we question the crown and whether all of that's accurate, for goodness sake. Final thought, yeah. quick final thought. Will this film finish up being banned by all cinema chains in this country? I mean, that's for them to decide. I say firstly thank you to the protesters because they've done a huge uh, publicity stunt for us and it's got the film to a much wider <laughs> audience than we ever could. Uh, in terms of the cinemas, my message to the cinemas and to the British community as a whole is do not cower down to these people. They are, they have, it's, it's empty threats. They have no authority to dictate what we as British people can and cannot watch in the cinema. Anyone wants to disagree with the film, we're happy to discuss. We're happy to, for you to express yourself, but do so within the bounds of the law. Do so respectfully. Do not try yes, to censor absolutely. others from expressing their views uh, for or against. We have no issue. I thank you very much indeed for coming on and joining this debate and thank you. Uh, and I see all of this, frankly, as appeasement, as giving in. We've talked many times on this programme. We've talked many times on this programme about, you know, does violent protest work? Uh, and sadly, too often, it seems to, it appears it has, at least with one cinema chain, in this case. In a statement, Cineworld said, due to recent incidents relating to the screenings of The Lady of Heaven, we have made the decision to cancel upcoming screenings of the film nationwide to ensure the safety of our staff and customers. Well, I'm sorry, but that really is not good enough, and there have been protests all over the country. In a moment, we'll talk about the England football manager and his latest venture into culture wars. So is Brexit in peril? That was a question I asked you tonight. And Ken says, Brexit is in peril if Boris goes. He'll be replaced by Ramona Tory. Well, that, of course, would be a risk, although I very much doubt after Theresa May, the Conservative Party, the party membership, would ever pick a Remainer again. John says, don't underestimate the Remainers. They are planning to take us back into the EU. It will be a gradual process, as Adonis outlined in time. One viewer says, don't underestimate how many of the establishment haven't given up on the UK rejoining the EU. This battle is far from over. Graham says, I don't understand your stance on Brexit being under threat. Sort the Northern Irish Protocol and the European Court of Justice with the current government majority, then hopefully Brexit is done. Do you know what? I agree with that. They've got a whopping great majority, even though, even though the Prime Minister's in real trouble, they've got a whopping great majority. They should get on, sort out the protocol, sort out fish 
Let's not beg Norway for cod. Let's catch our own, for goodness sake. And that would be something of a start. And then start easing back on financial market regulations and many other things. But will they do it? Because three years into this government, they've chosen not to. Now, why what the Farage moment this morning was coming in from Kent and seeing the price of fuel. This, this image are the pictures of fuel prices at a service station on the M20, and you see it, diesel, basically there at £2 a litre. I know the pound is falling against the dollar, yet the oil price is well off the top, and yet these prices are simply rocketing. Now, look, Gareth Southgate has been a brilliant manager of the England football team. And, of course, he's taking us on to the World Cup this year in Qatar. Goodness knows why it's there, but hey. Um, and he's doing a great job. But he keeps getting involved in political debates, in basically culture war debates. Once again, the England team were booed for taking the knee. I know Gareth says it's a gesture that we don't want any racial differences, we don't want any racial bias in our society, but actually... It's the symbol for Black Lives Matter, a very corrupt and very hard left, dangerous organisation. And now he's said that the next time there's a big England penalty uh, shootout, let's hope there never is, because we always lose, that he might not pick black players because of the abuse some of those got after missing those penalties there in Wembley last July. I was there. It was horrendous. These black players did get abuse. Yet when it was investigated, it was found that nearly all of it came from bots and came from people not even in this country. And the truth of it is, the truth of it is, if you miss a penalty and you're playing for England in a major final, you will get abuse whatever height you are, whatever hair colour you are, whatever skin colour you are. And I do not believe it's right to say he might not pick black players for penalties. LGBT news. Yes, you'll love this. There are more than two genders. Yes, Amazon are selling a T-shirt for £16.95 with the phrase, there are more than two genders. Over it is an LGBT flag. But they do allow buyers to select the T-shirt in either male or female. I mean, you really couldn't invent some of this stuff, could you? It's been relatively quiet in the English Channel for the last few days. The weather has been, as you know, over the Jubilee weekend, mixed. But there were more migrant crossings today in the English Channel, into Dover, uh, and these are scenes that were taken middle of this morning today. And I can now tell you that the number that have crossed the Channel so far this year has now exceeded 10 thousand all right last year's figure was eight thousand or eight eight and a half thousand we've now exceeded ten thousand we're only into early june we've got the summer and early autumn months to come it is going to be a huge number i will take one or two more of your reactions to my question is brexit in peril john says if starmer obtains power with the SNP, Liberals and Greens, they certainly will make an effort to reverse Brexit. It's an absolute disgrace. Well, if they were honest with the electorate about it, that might be one thing, but as we all know, they don't really intend to be. Colin says, I just wish Boris would get on with it and cut the ties with the EU. Clean break should have happened years ago when the party was strong. Yes, I'll add, add into that the ECHR as well. And finally, Paul says, yes, you are right. We may get dragged back into the EU, but Boris must stay to save us. Opinion divided on that, and I understand that, and I know what I'm saying perhaps is counterintuitive to some. But I still believe that if Boris goes on leading the Conservative Party, 
into the next election, they will lose by a landslide. Now, in a moment, I'll be joined by a woman who was the number one female tennis player in the country, but she gave it up at a young age and has become an all-round TV star and presenter. It's Annabelle Croft. She'll be here on Talking Pints in just a moment. It's that time of the day. The GB News Tavern has been declared open. And I'm joined by Annabelle Croft, former professional tennis player. Annabelle, welcome, welcome. to Talking Thank Pints. You. Thank Very you for having me. Good to see you. <laughs> I have never done a TV show where I've been drinking pints before. <laughs> This Ooh, is, I'm this allowed is, to sip. Uh, no, this is GB News. I mean, we're different, you know. Um, we're, we're different and we're here to shake up and disrupt uh, the media. Right. And, we're, and we're nearly a year old and we've made some progress, yes. to be honest with you. And it's really interesting, you know, there you were, a young star tennis player and like all young sportsmen that turn professional, kind of your whole life from, from before you're 10 is its training yeah. and its practice and... You don't get to live the life of a normal kid or teenager growing up. And and, and we've had other, you know, former sports stars on the show talking about the sacrifice that people make to reach the top. But you get there, you know, Wimbledon player, you're you're British number one, you're beating some seriously top names. And at the age of 21, you say, enough. (laughs) I'll tell you what interests me. There are quite a few female professional tennis players who appear to be at the top of their game just walk away from it. Is it really that bad? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, you know, because I'm in my mid-50s, now 55, um, and I have three grown-up children, and I realise for a lot of people looking in from the outside, it's a very interesting question. Why does somebody stop when they're so young? Mm. But I think with any sport, when you've started it from a very, very early age and your whole life, as you just said, has been geared to just one direction, uh, dedication, uh, a lot of travelling, I call it quite a circus lifestyle, actually. It was like being in a real bubble world. And I guess when I got to about 18, 19, I felt like I'd been travelling a lot. I'd done nothing else but, you know, put tracksuits and trainers on and everything. And I was just hungry for exploring life outside the tennis world. And I felt like um, I wasn't particularly enjoying it. I, I enjoyed enormously the travel. And I felt like my education actually became uh, learning about different cultures. I mean, I had an extremely full life from such an early age. But there did come a point where I just thought, actually, do I want to do this till I'm sort of into the mid-30s? I did want to have children myself, and I couldn't see that Mm. really happening on the tour. And I just had decided I had had enough. And I I really don't regret it for a minute. People do ask me a lot that. But I do look back and think, now that my youngest child is much older than I was when I was Mm. playing that tennis life and then quitting... I do think, gosh, I'd love to have gone back with a slightly older, more mature head and just appreciated what I was doing and tried to understand what I was doing a little bit better, mm. if that answers the question. But no, well, it does, and, I, and, yet, and yet men seem to stick with it. Yeah. But, it, but it's quite a lot of younger female <laughs> tennis players have made the same decision that you've made. Yeah. I, I think, in a funny way, that we're talking pints here, yeah. I always picture the blokes, and I'm sure they probably don't go and have a pint, but I kind of picture that the blokes on the tour probably are able to go and hang out a bit together, mm. and it's a bit of a different atmosphere. But I think it was an all-women's circuit when I played, and we came together with the men just maybe four times a year. So it didn't feel a particularly natural way of living your life where you weren't interacting all the time. And, I mean, it's changed a lot now, so they do mix the tournaments together yeah. a lot more. But 
I think it was just quite cutthroat. And as I said, it's a circus lifestyle. It was, it's not what it's, it's all cracked up to be, but I mean, we're going to enjoy watching the grass court season the next few weeks. Well, we are. And, of course, of there, is a, there is a remarkable 19-year-old young female British tennis player yes. from Beckenham Tennis Club. Absolutely. Um, Emma <laughs> Raducanu. I mean, unbelievable, wasn't it? Amazing. Unranked, and she wins the US Open. I mean, it was just completely astonishing. Yeah. And suddenly she's on the front page of big glamour magazines yeah. and she's in demand. But she's struggling a bit with that, isn't she? I think, to be honest, I think she must be. Um, you, you know, you have to look at it and say, well, most players come out onto the tour and their dreams are to win a Grand Slam and you build towards that over a period of time and you do your apprenticeship out there on this other tour where she'd come from the ITF circuit, which was the mm. slightly lower circuit. She'd hardly played any tournaments on the main tour and it was like the parting of the waters and she just steamrolled her through, uh, way through, you know, qualifying and then the main draw, 10 matches back-to-back, -back, didn't drop a set and now she's having to do everything back to front and of course she has a massive target on her back uh, players are going to go after her they're all professional they're going to try and home in on any weaknesses and it must be hard because she's doing everything on center court every time she plays she's on the big show yeah. courts yeah. and she's doing everything in the glare of full publicity and i think it's it's hard for her at the moment but she's got some injury problems thrown in the mix as well and you know i'm not sure it'd be interesting what she would say about it but i think she's having to adjust to huge changes in her life i mean colossal change in yeah. a very short space of time now of course amongst the many things you do as a broadcaster <laughs> of course tennis punditry is yes. very much yeah, up i there. love it actually and i mean boy what a political year it's been i mean it started off of course back in january with the Australian Open, and I, I finished up um, in Belgrade with the Djokovic family. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. because no, because How I. How did you find them? Oh well, I was supposed to be on dry January, oh. but Uncle Goran, his uncle, owns a vineyard, and that, that went completely <laughs> out of the window. What? It was fascinating. I mean, all the all the trophy copies were yep. there, and you got the sense that Djokovic is a kind of a family firm. Oh, definitely. You know, yes. and very tight and yeah. very close as a family, uh, and I went. And I'd met them before, sort of post-Wimbledon yeah. social events. And I I kind of felt that what was happening was monstrous, yeah. that he'd been told by, you know, he'd been told by Victoria State that under their rules he could go. And then the national government overruled them and he was effectively put into virtually a prison camp yeah. for a few days. Um, and that was the row over the vaccines. But now we have another row, uh, which is, uh, I think, even worse. I mean, and I've talked about this before on this mm. programme, you know, when apartheid South Africa mm -hmm. was taken out of the rugby and cricket worlds, you know, Gary Player, who was a South African, yeah. still was on the American tour, won the US Masters, won the US Open, because he was Gary Player, golfer as an yes. individual. Mm. He wasn't representing the South African government. And now what we find, it's very difficult, but now what we find, I mean, there are some blooming good Russian and Belarusian oh, yes. tennis players, both men and women. Yep. And they're not allowed to play in Wimbledon despite the fact that they're not uh, directly representatives of, of their country. And there are some said they must denounce Putin. Mm. But then, if my mum and dad lived in Moscow, would I...? Mm, I don't uh, think so. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to do that, no. particularly. No. Um, and the All England Tennis Club have made the decision that they can't play. Uh, the event, Wimbledon of all events, is now going to be just a show event. It's not going to... Yeah. No count, points. No points count for rankings. Mm. I mean, haven't the All England Club just made a terrible mistake? 
Well, I knew that you might pick this subject tonight. So well, I, I had uh, to. Yeah. yeah, of course you did. And I, uh, I, I chose to, to ring one of the committee members just to sort of get the inside yeah. track on it. And my opinion was very much with you. And, you know, I feel like I'm very, very sad for the players. Uh, you know, you work your whole life and you're dedicated to try to win a Grand Slam. And actually, Wimbledon is probably the pinnacle of, uh, I, I believe, in most players' minds. It won't be in all of them, but for most of them, they would want to well, win Wimbledon. Well, will it be after this? Well, that's, that's a very good question. And also, we don't know how long this war is going to go on. And so how many years may we ban them for? But anyway, I, I spoke mm. to the committee member yeah, today sorry. and he said, um, you know, they've taken no satisfaction from this decision whatsoever. Uh, according to him, it was obviously a government directive and that they had laid out this guidance that they did not want any neutral players, which, of course, the French Open did take the neutral players. And as you've pointed out, you are playing there as an individual, but they have the guidance from the government was that. The other option was um, that they signed the declaration, as you said. I mean, they did. Wimbledon didn't want to put the players or their families under that stress because who knows what mm. could happen. It could be horrendous. So government pressure is what, you, is what oh, you're Oh, I, I, as I understand it... Um, and then they obviously didn't want a Russian or a Belarusian player lifting possibly the trophy. And the only other option, he said, was to just not invite them. But it has affected 70-odd players. And, of course, tennis is quite fragmented because you have the Grand Slams, Australia, French, Wimbledon and US Open. You've then yeah. got the governing bodies, the WTA, which represents the women, the ATP that represents the men, the ITF, which represents team competitions and lots of wheelchair events and the lower-tier level events as well. Um, it's all a little bit fragmented. Of course, there's pressure come down now saying, well, this is uh, discriminatory well, and we're going to take the points away. So it's it's actually a bit of a mess. And I'm It's not a mess. Sure... I think the All England... <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want, you don't have to comment on it, but I think the All England Club should have told the government to go to hell, frankly. Well, as I understood it, it was an interesting one. I did hear... I don't know that this is correct, but I understood that if they had done that, possibly the government might have taken away visas anyway. But um, I don't know. Well, so it's an interesting well anything's point. possible, but I, I think Wimbledon's made itself look pretty mm. blooming ridiculous. Now, Annabelle, you've done so many different television programmes, oh. <laughs> you know, action-adventure stuff and all sorts, but one of the things that you have done is quite a few programmes around food. Oh, yeah. And I love my food. you are mm. keen on nutrition, um, how we medicate ourselves, how we live our yeah. lives, and I know that you've touched in the past on this question of childhood obesity mm. in this country. There's a Tory MP, Lee Anderson, from Ashfield, one of the Red Wall Tory, and, 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 and Tory MPs, and he said a couple of months ago that one of the problems was people had forgotten how to cook, Yeah, that they just relied on the takeaway and that these takeaways were full of sugar and yeah. full of salt and full of the wrong kind of fats. Yeah. Um, how do we deal with a nation that's forgotten how to eat properly? Well, it has to come from the parents, doesn't it, obviously. Uh, but then it, ha it has to come from education of mm. how you eat and what makes you healthy. And in my opinion, that there is too much uh, emphasis on fast foods. You know, when you go to the supermarket, it's quick picking up food. You only have to look at a packet of anything that is pre-packed or has to be advertised as a food and it's probably not going to be very good for you. If it contains more than five ingredients and you look at the list of E-numbers and horrible additives and stabilisers and gums, you could just go through that list and you know that a lot of that stuff is going to affect not just your health, but also probably your, the, the child's brain or an adult's brain. I mean, there's all sorts of things... But that the argument against it. what you're saying mm. 
He said it's cheap. Is it, <laughs> and it's the kind of Hugh Fernley Whittingstall criticism. Mm. He says, look, you should have fresh this and fresh that. Yeah, and and I get all of it. And it costs a lot of money, they say. But it's more expensive. Well, I don't know that it necessarily is. I mean, you know, even a baked potato, you can go and grab a potato, which costs, you know, 50, 60 B or whatever it is, wherever you decide to buy it from, and you can just whack that in the oven and it's not going to well, cost a lot of money. Well, it wouldn't have done until the gas price went up. <laughs> well, that's a very good point. But, but yeah, no, it's... it's doing... But we do have a problem, don't we? A third of our youngsters are... are, yeah, are it's, I find it heartbreaking these. because mm. I feel like, um, you know, if you go across the water and you go to some of these European countries, they have such a food culture where their children mm. are engaging with food, sitting down at the table with the together. adults, learning how to eat yeah. together and enjoying lots of lovely coloured nutrients and flavours. Yeah. And it's just part of the culture. Mm. Whereas we tend to give our kids concrete coloured food, which has been fried till it doesn't represent any food at all. It sort of has to be identified by its dental records, practically, because <laughs> it's just absolutely <laughs> like a solid piece of rock. No. And... Um, you know, I'm really sad because, you know, we had um, somebody that came as a babysitter once for our children and she was from Croatia and she was very young and she said, I can't believe the way you in, in, in Britain feed your children. She said, we're, we're very poor in Croatia, but we try to choose the best ingredients for our children because the nutrients for that child is so important for the growth of the so brain. We've got so much work to do. Yeah, we, we have got a lot of work to do. Well, I want to you do. to go on. Doing what you're doing, enjoying being a TV Thank presenter, you. an all-round well, star, and helping educate the nation's well, youngsters and their parents, go. more importantly. Well, Thank you. you. It's lovely to meet you. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers. <laughs>